Are you all full of vitality and energy this morning? Are you excited? All right. Well, if you're not, if maybe you're one of those people who's kind of still on the fence a little bit, maybe if I told you at the onset that in the sermon, in the message today, I was going to talk about Vince Lombardi, the prayer of Jabez. I was going to talk about revolution. I was going to talk about jawbreakers. The Inquisition and the Lord's Prayer. How would you feel then? Nothing's really changed. It's basically the same. (laughs) What all those things have in common, like I said, they're all going to be in today's message. Vince Lombardi, I don't know if you're a football fan or guru of American football, the NFL, but there's a guy that's kind of an icon in the football world. His name's Vince Lombardi, and he was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. He had a long, extensive football career prior to that, but people really know him. People really know you when you kind of bubble up to the top, right? If you ask people, like, what did Vince Lombardi do before that, they don't really know. But they know that he was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers between 1959 and 1967. You might say, so what? Is today going to be about football and stats? No, it's about a quote, a very famous quote that Vince Lombardi made. The Packers had gone for almost 20 years without a championship. And in the summer of 1961, Vince Lombardi started off their preseason football camp by standing before a bunch of professional football players, and he held up a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. You might say, well, that seems like a pretty silly thing to say to a bunch of professional football players. But the point is, is that they'd lost their way. Football had become about a bunch of other stuff. team wasn't really doing well. Lombardi came along, and within two years, he got that team back to a championship. They didn't just have one championship under Lombardi. They had five. Five championships between 61 and 67. Vince Lombardi had to teach the basics, the fundamentals He taught them the what, this is a football, and he taught them the how, this is what we do, this is what your position requires as a football player. But the one thing that Vince Lombardi did not have to do is he didn't have to teach them the why. See, if you lost interest in the game, you could just walk away. You weren't a part of it anymore. The guys that were there wanted to be there, even though the pay wasn't great, even though the equipment wasn't great, even though training and exercise methods at that point were pretty crude. There were a lot of injuries, career-ending injuries, but the guys that played the game, for the most part, loved the game. And I wonder, I wondered this week as I was preparing 
I wondered what the response would have been if Lombardi had gone to a church and stood in front of a congregation and held up a Bible and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. My guess is, it didn't happen, but my guess is, and I think it's a pretty good guess, it's more of a hypothesis, it's an educated guess, right? Is that Vince Lombardi would have driven a lot of people away and the people that remained probably would have voted him out. If Lombardi had been the pastor, he would have driven 50%, 80% of the people away by holding up a Bible and saying something so rudimentary, something so crude, this is a Bible. Well, we know it's a Bible, pastor. I have seven of them at home. But do you read it? Well, of course I read it. It's a Bible, and then those remaining probably would have voted him out. Today, many who profess, profess to be evangelical, born-again, devout followers, disciples of the risen king, many have no idea what this is about. They don't understand the why. And you say, Pastor, how could you say that? That seems like a pretty strong accusation. Well, there's a lot of stuff that I could say, but I'm going to go to one place in particular. The prayer of Jabez. Anyone ever heard of the prayer of Jabez? I've only got like four or five people in here, six maybe. The prayer of Jabez. It's from the Bible. But there was a man named Bruce Wilkerson that in the year 2000 published a book called The Prayer of Jabez. And in it, he took the passage from the Old Testament completely out of context. And the one part of it that people remember, usually if you say to someone, what's the part of The Prayer of Jabez that you remember? What is it? Come on, there were like six of you that raised your hand. What's the part you remember? Expand my territory. Woo! That sounds pretty good, right? Expand my territory, boy. I want to get in on that. So Bruce Wilkerson wrote a book about an obscure passage of Scripture in the middle of the book of Chronicles, and he sold two, no, I'm sorry, nine million copies in the first two years. Nine million. Million! It was number one in Christian bookstores all over the United States. Lifeway, Mardell's, and all the others. I went and I looked at some of the comments on a popular website. It had 4.8 rating out of five. A 4.8 stars out of five. That sounds pretty good. If I was going to buy a lawnmower, that's the lawnmower I would want to buy. Nine million people bought one, and it's got 4.8 stars out of five. One of the comments, I recommend this book for every Christian. Another one, this is the best book I have ever read. 
Another comment, this one was shocking to me. Effective teaching on, quote, proper biblical prayer. The prayer of Jabez. But if I were to ask you, what is the prayer? As we just found out, many people, it's about expanding my territory. What book of the Bible in? Well, I just gave it away. I told you that it was in Chronicles. What's the point of Chronicles? I don't know. What's the historical timeline? Many Christians, I don't know. How does it fit into the grand narrative of the Bible? I don't know. What is the grand narrative of the Bible? Pastor, stop asking me these difficult questions. I do not know. But I'm going to claim that prayer. Expand my territory, boy. Expand my territory. And I want to tell you that Bruce Wilkerson blew it. Many of our English translations, all the ones that I looked at, blew it. You say, Pastor, you are one confident individual. To say all of these biblical scholars, all of these people who spend time and have degrees in Hebrew and all of these ancient languages, you're going to say that they got it wrong? And I say, yes, they got it wrong. First Chronicles, I don't know if I said earlier Second Chronicles. I meant to say First Chronicles, chapter 4, the prayer of Jabez. It's this long list of Judah's sons. Perez, Huron, in chapter 4, Camry, and name after name after name after name after name. And then, in verse 9, out of nowhere, Jabez. And if you speak Hebrew, if you can read Hebrew, J-A, we translate in English, is what's called a Yahwistic name. Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, that's what we write in English. It's Yah, Yahweh has done something. Like the word Elijah, the name Elijah, El, Yiyah, it's a Yahwistic name. It's a name of God attached with something that's a characteristic or a trait that maybe a parent wants to define their child, their son, or their daughter by. Yah, Jabez, it should be Yabez. And in the English translation, it says, was more honored. It's a strange way to translate that Hebrew word. Because that Hebrew word sometimes is translated glorious, but when it's talking about God, it's the weight of glory, title of one of C.S. Lewis's books, the weight of glory, the weight, the burdensomeness of God, is that when Moses wanted to see God's face, he said, you can't handle it. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. You get to peek between your fingers, and you're only going to get to see me from behind, and it's still going to rock your world. Yah, Bez, it doesn't mean honored in this particular case. Bezoa, the Hebrew word, it means despised. It means Yahweh despised. Because Jabez was more burdensome than his brothers. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because it says it. His mother named him Jabez and said, I've given birth to him in pain. She's had these other children, these other sons, and then Jabez comes along, and he's the one that I bore in pain. And so when we look at it, when we translate it with that text, that context, and we go on, 
And this person whose name is Yahweh despises, Yabez, Jabez, called out to the Lord God of Israel, if only you would bless me and extend, expand my territory. That's the part we hold on to. Let your hand be with me. Keep me from evil so that I will not cause any more pain. He caused pain to his mother. She named him Yahweh despises. And he calls out to God. He says, God, if you would extend my borders, if you would extend my borders, then I could sit here in isolation. And if your hand would be upon me and keep me from evil and you keep people away from me, so that my territory is vast and I don't encounter anyone else, God. I don't want to cause anyone else more pain because I brought it on my mom. But see, what we do in our perverted and twisted minds is we take it and we say, expand my territory, God, because this story is all about me and my good stuff. You're like Amazon Prime. You're like the UPS delivery guy, God. Bring it to my front door. And then I'm going to get on my app and I'm going to rate your service. I don't know. My camera kind of caught him tossing it, you know? He was two steps away and he didn't set it down and gently pet my package. That came out wrong. We miss it, folks. So I talked about Vince Lombardi, I talked about Jabez, and now we're going to get into jawbreakers. So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, turn to Psalm chapter 3. What does Vince Lombardi, what is the prayer of Jabez, what does any of that have to do with Psalm 3? And the title of today's sermon is the Jawbreaker Psalm. If you ask people, what is Psalm 3 about, if they know... They're probably going to go directly to verse 3. Maybe they're going to start singing the song, right? Do you know it? But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Right? That's the part. That's what we sing. That's what we claim. You, God, are a shield for me. You're on my clock. You better bring me some good stuff. Oh, we wouldn't really see it that way, right? But somewhere in the back of our minds, that's what we're really praying for. You say, how do you know, Pastor? Because the prayer of Jabez's book sold over 9 million copies in two years. It was one of the number one top-selling books for over 10 years in Christian bookstores. Pastors, congregants, congregations were buying it up in bulk. Bible studies started all around the prayer of Jabez. Women's groups, let's pray the prayer of Jabez. I'm going to hand out books to my friends and my neighbors. The prayer of Jabez. I'm going to name it and claim it. Expand my territory, Lord. See, that's exactly what we do when we read Scripture. And as I said earlier, I think if there were Vince Lombardi pastors and leaders in churches, 
They would hold up the Bible and they would say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. It's a story about God. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's not about us. He's the direct object. He's the subject. It's about him and his glory. And by his mercy and his grace and his covenant loyalty to us, He showers it down upon us, and he sent his son, Jesus, to the cross to die for our sins. Ask people what they know. They know verse 3. Be a shield for me. And I want to ask, say, do you know about verse 7? Well, we don't read that part. I don't read that part to my kids, right? I don't read it to my kids. We don't talk about it in little kids' Sunday school. We don't do it at VBS about smacking someone in the mouth and breaking their jaw. We don't do it, Mike. We don't don't talk talk that that way way in front of our our kids, but it's it's in God's God's Word. Well, let's let's just back up a little bit and let's teach our kids and tell them, just call out to God and say, God, be a shield for me. Be my shield. God, be my glory. Be the one who does stuff for me and makes me happy and brings joy and contentment in my life so that when there's any trouble, when there's any waves or waters or wind, If there's there's any any trouble trouble on the horizon at all, people people get up and they run for the hills. Someone told me just before service today that they read a study that said that, I forget what the exact number was, but it was something like 75% of Christians have left the church. And the Barna Research Group, according to what I can recall from the conversation, Barna says that many of those people say they're never going to come back. It's become inconvenient. I did it online for a while, but now we've been doing it online. You know, I just feel disconnected. And after I feel disconnected and what this means to me is, and I'm the epicenter of the world, and, you know, it's really all about me and this COVID thing and the church thing and having to pull up and to wear a mask. It's all just a beat down. It's really a hassle. So I'm not going back. I can listen to a sermon online when I feel like it. Verse 7. Rise up, Yahweh. Rise up, Yahweh. I wish that there was an English translation of a Bible that rendered all of the names of God how they are in Hebrew so that we just stop saying Lord and God like these generic placeholders. He's calling out to Yahweh, the great I Am, the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the one that sent Moses back to Egypt to stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Why? Because you're not God. You're a kid. You're a child. You're a creature. You're part of creation. And God desires that we would be released, that we would go to Sinai, and that we would worship the Creator, and you're in His way. That's why. That's the great I am. And when the people of Israel say, who sent you? I am. Not just I was, not just that I will be. I am. Live in the present, folks. Stop living for traditions of the past. Stop looking for what's coming tomorrow. When Jesus in Luke 11 taught the disciples how to pray, they came to him and they said, Lord, how do we pray? Because if we look at the religious leaders, they're doing it wrong. If we look at these people over here, we know they're doing it wrong. 
Everybody's making it about themselves and about religion and about ceremony. We don't know how to pray, and I think it's one of the greatest passages in Scripture, and yet we still pervert it. We take what Jesus said, and we turn it into something that we recite. It wasn't something to recite. They asked the question, how do we pray? And he gave them an outline. He gave them a a lesson, a teaching on how to pray. Make it about the Father and his holiness and where he dwells in heaven. Far above where we are in this murk and this quagmire, the muck of sin that we created. Ask the Father. Ask him, say, Father, could you let your kingdom come? Because I'm not the king, and I don't want anything to do with the throne. I want you to be on the throne, because when you leave me in charge, I'm going to wreck and ruin everything. I want your will to be done, not just in the world, but in my life. And if it causes me suffering, what did Paul say? Suffering produces what? Perseverance. And then perseverance creates character. And character creates hope. That's what it does, but we don't say that. We say, expand my territory. Be my shield. Make sure that I'm never uncomfortable. Make sure it's never awkward or inconvenient. Just make it good for me because I'm really the epicenter of all things. And as long as you're the delivery mechanism for the good stuff in my life, then I'm going to keep giving you a thumbs up on social media, God. But when that ceases, I'm out of here. God, punch my enemies in the mouth. Don't talk that way, Pastor. It's in the Word. Save me, rescue me, Elohim. Punch them in the mouth, break their teeth, break their jaw. Salvation is of Yahweh. It's of you, God. It's not from me. It's not about my curriculum. It's not about the decisions and the choices that I make. It's about honoring you. That your will being done in and through my life and salvation comes exclusively from you for your glory. Upon your people, may your blessing be. But what we do, we read that and we start off and we say, Lord, how many my foes have increased. Those who are around me, they attack me. And we say, that lady or that guy at work, the one that doesn't like me because I show up late or I show up too early, that I give people a bad name or I don't do my job. Oh, Lord, the enemies that are around me, the employee, the employer, the annoying church member, the annoying pastor, the annoying church leader. God, how many foes are around me? That's our kind of prayer. But if we were to ask... What's the context? People would say, well, how can we possibly know? It's lost in time, right? It's not lost in time. It's at the very beginning. It says it's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom, right? You ask people, well, who's Absalom? Well, it says it's one of his sons. Why was he fleeing? I don't know why he was fleeing. Who are the enemies? I don't know who the enemies are. Why are they saying that there's no help from him? Maybe they're atheists. It's not that they were atheists. It's like Job. They were saying, if God is causing David to flee, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with David. 
just like those friends, those three friends of Job, kept telling and saying, Job, it's your sin. That's why you're going through this. And we find out in the book that that's not why. That if you read chapter 1 at the very beginning, it's because we have an enemy who's coming after us, and he wants to wreck our lives, and he wants us to curse God. And that's what all these people who are around David are saying. There is no help from him, from Elohim. The creator of the universe isn't going to help you, David. Because if he was, then your son wouldn't have revolted. The people of Israel wouldn't be idolaters and curmudgeons. Saul's family wouldn't hate you for what you did to him and the revolution that you led. This is on you, David. But David answers that. He says, God, you're a shield for me. See, when I'm walking in your way, in your path, in your goodness, in your light, in your life, when I'm walking in that, I don't really have to worry about the consequences. Yeah, I'm running for my life. And I guarantee that the reason why David ran is because he was led to do so by the Holy Spirit. He didn't just run just because he thought it would be a good idea. He's running. Absalom's after him. The nation of Israel is after him. His own advisors have betrayed him. Saul's family and his supporters are after him. And he says that there are people on every side. And they're saying there's no help from God, but you, Yahweh, you're a shield around me. Not for me, but around me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, Yahweh, I cry aloud to Yahweh. I cry aloud to Yahweh. And you know what happens? He answers me. He answers me. This speck. He answers me, and he answers me from his holy mountain. From that high and lofty place where no mortal can stand. But we want to ignore all that, right? We want to equate David's enemies with my enemies. We want to equate David's walk with my walk. We want to equate David's prize, his shield, his treasure, his very great reward, his God with my God. And I guarantee you that David never once looked up to God and demanded anything. I cry aloud, and God answers me from his holy hill. I lie down in verse 5, and I sleep. I wake because of you, God, and I'm not going to be afraid. Do you all know that fear is the antithesis? It's the complete opposite of faith. Do you remember Psalm 56.3? David wrote, he said, that when I'm afraid, when that fear starts to bubble up in me, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Even if I can't see what the next step looks like, even if my son is chasing after me and wants to cut off my head, 
even if I'm surrounded on all sides, I get to lay down and I get to sleep and I get to have a good night's rest and I get to wake up in the morning because of you, God. And I'm not going to be afraid because you're the sustainer, you're sovereign, you're Yahweh, you're Elohim. How could David trust like that? Why would David trust like that? That's only a question from us. David never thought that way. The Apostle Paul didn't think that way later in his ministry and in his life when he wrote the book of Philippians. And he said in his writings, he said, to live for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What are the enemies that are around me? What can they possibly do? If you take my life, I win. And if you don't take my life, I win. And if you chain me to a guard and throw me in prison, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Yahweh, my Savior, my God, the Creator. I'm not going to sit there and despise God and say, how could you? How could you abandon me? How could you cause me discomfort and sufferings? How could you allow my thermostat to go out so that the heat would go up to 85 when I like it at 72? I don't think that's what Paul prayed about. I don't think that's what David prayed about. There's a guy named Shimmy in the Bible, and those of you that are present here today that aren't listening to the message online, you say, we heard about this guy, Shimmy, in the children's sermon. But the people listening online, they didn't hear it. And I'm not going to go in extensively into it, but there's a guy named Shimmy. When David's running away, because that's what Psalm 3 tells us, he's fleeing from Absalom, so he's got Absalom after him. He's got the nation of Israel that hates him. He's got all kinds of people who are upset, who are idolaters and curmudgeons, and people that despise David, and then he's got the people from Saul's camp. And as we read earlier, this guy Shimei, that's one of Saul's relatives, comes alongside David in 2 Samuel 16, and he's cursing David and all of the people that followed him, and one of David's people comes along and says, David, I'll, I'll just cut off his head for you. David's response to him, do we agree on anything? See, because this is from the Lord, and we just got to roll with it. I'm not going to lift my hand. If this is from the Lord, what are we going to do? If God wants to curse me, then it's up to God. And if God wants to bless me, that's up to God. So David doesn't lift a hand. Verse 13 of chapter 16 of 2 Samuel says, So David and his men proceeded along the road, and Shimei was going along, yelling at them, cursing them, throwing stones, and kicking up dust. David's response was probably more like the Lord's preaching and teaching from Luke 11. Make it about God the Father. Make it about His will and His kingdom. Don't make it about the enemies that have gotten around you. It's not a prayer. It's a teaching. And the result, in the end, was that Absalom failed. He was killed. The revolt was squashed. David's kingdom was restored. 
And as I promised in the kids' message, I'm going to tell you what happened to this guy, Shimon. 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 16. Shimei, son of Gera the Benjamite, hurried down. This is after they found out that Absalom has died and David has been restored as king and he's going back to Jerusalem. Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite, the one who had cursed David and kicked and thrown stones. There were a thousand men from Benjamin with him. Ziba, an attendant from the household of Saul with 15 of his sons and 20 servants, also rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king ahead of David. And they forded up, they blocked up the waters of the Jordan so that the king and his household could go across and do whatever the king desired. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell face down before the king and he said to him, My Lord, don't hold me guilty. Don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my Lord left. Jerusalem, may the king not take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. But look, today I'm the first one, I'm the first one of the entire house of Joseph, of everyone in Israel, I'm the first to come down and meet you, my king. Abishai, the guy that wanted to cut off Shimmy's head earlier, Abishai asked, shouldn't Shimmy be put to death? Shouldn't he be put to death because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said to Abishai once again, Do we have anything in common? Have you become my adversary today? Should any man be killed in Israel? Am I not aware that today I'm the king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, Catch this, listen. You will not die. Then the king gave him his oath. If you don't see Jesus Christ in the picture of what just happened, see, David is an archetype. He foreshadows Jesus, the eternal king, and we're shimmy. And we curse and we rebel against God the king, the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he waits patiently. And what we deserve is to have our heads lopped off. But instead, what he did was he went to the cross and he took it for us. Amen? And so at some point down the road, when we wake up and we realize our sin and we come back and we're the first ones at his feet and we cast ourselves down, we say, King! Jesus, please don't take that to heart. I was a fool. Don't remember that. Remember what I'm doing right now in this moment. And Jesus, just like King David, says to us who are born again by faith, you're not going to die. The king is giving you his oath. Pastor, you've kind of been all over the place. You were in the prayer of Jabez, you were in Chronicles, and then you were in Samuel, and then you were in Psalm 3, and things are just kind of blowing up in my mind. 
I imagine that at this time when David flees from his son Absalom, instead of being angry at God, that this man Shimei was on his mind. And he's able to lie down, he's able to sleep, and he's thinking of this man Shimei. And in verse 7, it says, Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike, you smite all my enemies on the cheek, on the jaw. You break the teeth of the wicked. See, David's prayer for Shimei was is that God would punch him in the mouth. You say, that sounds really harsh, Pastor. That doesn't sound like it jives. Wait a second. Not literal. Not literally punching him in the mouth. Punching him in his heart, in his soul. Causing him that if you get a broken jaw, can you eat? You can't eat. It's even hard to drink. So David's prayer and saying, break his jaw, punch him in the mouth, bust his teeth, is cause shimmy, cause my enemies to become desperately dependent on you, God. To the point that they can't function. And God answered that prayer. But we don't pray those kinds of prayers. What we do is we go, Thou will order a shield for me. Expand my territory. We're not going to talk about God punching people in the mouth in Sunday school. I'm not going to teach that to my kids. That's the focal point of the text. That David prayed that, that his enemies would become desperately dependent on God and that they would throw themselves at the feet of the king and that they would find salvation. Amen? He says in verse 8, Salvation is of you, Yahweh. Upon your people, may your blessing be. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. This is a Bible. And I want to ask you today, do we have anything in common? Are we praying God intervening, jaw-breaking, life-altering prayers? Or are you simply praying that God would expand your territory for your benefit. Let's pray together. O oh, King, risen Christ, we pray today that you would answer us from your holy mountain. We cast ourselves at your feet. And we ask that you would not take our sin to heart. God, maybe there's someone here today who's always thought that the story of the Bible is about them and not about you. Maybe there's someone here today that thinks that because of the religious stuff that they've done, they've cast themselves at your feet and maybe your spirit is working in them. Maybe today through this message and through the power of your spirit, you punched them in the mouth, that you broke their jaw, 
that you wrecked their life and you ruined the false reality that they believed in so that they could be born again, that they could experience life in you, Lord Jesus. That you would take them from that wide gate that leads to destruction and that you would lead them to the narrow one that is you, the way, the truth, and the life, knowing that no one gets to the Father but through you. You are salvation. You, Jesus, Yahweh, you're our creator, you're our sustainer, you are our all in all. And I pray today, Lord, that your word would not return to you void, whether it's here in this physical place or whether it's out on the internet where this message is heard and shared and played in homes all across the globe, that a mighty work would be done for you and for your glory alone. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I don't know what God has been doing or is doing in your heart and in your life, but in this time of invitation and response, all I can say is I pray that you would respond.